for several weeks already, we've been looking at this passage as that starts in chapter 1, verse 3, and ends in verse 14. And the reason why we are doing that is that in Greek, it's really one unbroken stream uh, of thought, which is all unpacking verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In other words, all of that paragraph is unpacking and unfolding that verse 3, the spiritual blessings that, that we have in Christ in the heavenly places. That's why it's important for us to keep the context in mind. And uh, in particular, um, the first century Greek was written without any punctuation marks. And so when you uh, translate it into modern English, uh, where we put the punctuation marks, it's something of an, uh, something of an art. And I think uh, there are uh, really good reasons to consider that the end of verse 6, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, really belongs to verse 7. And uh, the end of verse 6 and in all of verse 7 uh, uh, compose a unit of thought. And that's why we are looking at uh, uh, that passage today. And with that, uh, let me ask you a question. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Now, I've heard many people say that uh, being a Christian means having a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, that's true. But at the same time, that's not sufficient. Um, I've heard, for example, cult members Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses say the same thing. Being a Christian means having a personal relationship with Jesus. And so to define what it means to know and worship and follow the Lord in terms of what you find in your heart upon subjective terms and say being a Christian means having a personal relationship with Jesus is at best a partial truth. And when partial truth becomes the whole truth, it often becomes a lie. So it is, yes, to be a Christian means having a personal relationship with Jesus, but that's not enough. Nor can the answer be, if you were to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? If someone answers, being a Christian means being a good person. Or, being politically conservative, or being a Christian means holding on to traditional family values. Not, none of these answers are sufficient because you see people who either explicitly reject Jesus or know nothing about him can fully give assent and agreement to these statements. Besides, you realize that when people give these various definitions or answers to what it means to be a Christian, it's really people coming to Jesus and telling Jesus, this is what it means to follow you. Uh, it's never a good idea to correct God. So let me tell you that uh, here in this passage, Paul tells us in very, uns very clear Terms, what it means to be a Christian. And that means 
embracing Jesus in all the way that the Father gives him to us. Embracing Jesus as the Father gives him to us. And Paul tells us three things that focus our attention this morning. The first thing that Paul tells us is that in him we have redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood. Now, the concept and the language of redemption is rooted in the Old Testament. For example, if you read Exodus chapter 6, the Lord sends Moses, and through Moses the Lord speaks, saying, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So in Exodus, that word redeem, the idea of redemption is God coming to set free the people of Israel, Israel who were slaves and in bondage in Egypt. Now that's before the Lord accomplished the redemption. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, after the Lord has accomplished the redemption, in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 8, this is what we read. Moses saying to the people of Israel, It is because the Lord loves you that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so these are just two examples to uh, let you know that the, the language and the concept of redemption is rooted in the Old Testament, and it has a very specific meaning. It means God coming to rescue those who are uh, slaves and in bondage, and with his power, with this love, rescuing those who had no way to save themselves. That's what redemption means. And Paul's use of redemption language also uh, reflects and is informed by how that word and concept was used in first century Ephesus. Um, you know, there's volumes and volumes of writings, inscriptions from first century Ephesus that have been discovered. And what we have learned in, from first century Ephesus is that the word redemption uh, was associated, it meant the ransom that was paid to reclaim a kidnapped family member. And the word redemption was used to describe the price uh, that was paid to set a slave free, to change his status from being a slave to a freed person. And so taken together, as Paul, steeped in the Old Testament scriptures as he was, and speaking to the people of the first century Ephesus, we realize that this redemption language together paint a very stark picture of man's reality and man's need. Our reality is bondage, and our need is freedom, but we have no resources within ourselves to change 
our situation. And that is why it's so important to recognize what Paul is saying here. Now, remember in verse 4, this is what Paul said. In love, God predestined us for adopting to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 6 and 7, Paul says, In the beloved, in him, we have redemption through his blood. So see what, it, what Paul is doing. Paul, Paul cannot conceive of God's love except as it is given to us through Jesus Christ. When Paul talks about the love of God, the only way that Paul understands God's love is to see it as something that we receive through Jesus Christ, which is found in the beloved for our redemption through his blood. And how God redeemed his old covenant people anticipates and gives us the framework to understand how God redeems his new covenant people. And what Paul is telling us is this, that Jesus, Jesus is himself God's love. But more than that, Jesus redeeming sinners with his love, with his blood, is God's love. So God's love has a specific content. God's love is Jesus Christ redeeming sinners with his blood. You know, there's all sorts of loose talk about God's love. Uh, and you realize much of what is said about God's love is quite shallow. It's been emptied of all its meaning. But God's love in, Paul, in Paul's writings as well as throughout scriptures, God's love has a very specific meaning. God's love is Jesus Christ redeeming sinners with his blood. So that's the first thing we need to know about Jesus. And, and that brings us to the second area of focus. First, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption. Secondly, in him, in Jesus, we have forgiveness. So Paul says in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So that phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses, help us to understand what redemption through blood means. And it's interesting, in our culture, redemption has a very uh, weak meaning. Uh, coupons. Let us redeem an offer of a free soda. That's how we talk about redemption. Or we might say that a movie character has a redemptive arc if he makes up for his past mistakes. Uh, but redemption in the Bible is really nothing less than a costly rescue of a helpless person. It is a costly rescue, and the person who is being rescued was helpless that they could not save themselves. And so you remember, God's redemption of Israel from Egypt it was effected 
with the death of the sacrificial lamb. The blood of the lamb was applied to the doorposts of Israel's households, and that blood of the lamb marked them safe from God's judgment. And God's judgment passed over them, but found out every person who did not take shelter under the blood. That sacrificial lamb whose blood marked God's people and the sacrificial lamb that gave itself its flesh as food, it pointed to Jesus Christ. Because you see, it is Jesus' blood shed on the cross that makes us and marks us safe from God's judgment. And it is Jesus who gives his body as our food. Just in case you have forgotten, that's the significance and the meaning of the Lord's Supper, which we participate, which we receive every week, isn't it? He gives himself as our food. And so when we understand that, you realize that these things make it impossible for us to ignore what our status was before God. And it makes it impossible to ignore that without Christ, we are sinners before God. Now, sin is not freedom. Sin is bondage. You know, that two of the most important questions of our culture and our time today are these. What does it mean to be a human being? And how does a human being flourish? The turmoils in our culture are all related to those two questions. What does it mean to be a human being? And where is human flourishing found? But we need to understand that human beings do not flourish in rebellion against God. Sin does not lead to human fulfillment because sin rather marks us for judgment and death. The prophet Jeremiah said these very memorable words in Jeremiah 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. And so what the prophet says is this, can an Ethiopian person change the hue of his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? If they can do that, then you sinners can begin to do something good. You who are accustomed to do evil. And so this is the scripture's teaching about what sin is. Sin is not freedom. Sin is actually bondage. And it is a bondage from which we have absolutely no ability and no power to break free from. We are in bondage to sin and we do its biddings and we are unable to save ourselves. And sin works spiritually in our heart 
very much like how physical addiction works in our body. Do you know someone who is addicted? I think most of us, uh, most of us know some people that are addicted to something. Now what's addiction? What does it do to the body? What's going on in their heads? You see, they turn to some substance or they turn to some habit. Why? Not to ruin their lives. That's never the reason why they start out being addicted to something. They turn to some substance or to some practice, some habit, in order to escape what they sense as life's frustrations. They sense that their life is spiraling out of control. Now, these, these things, when you are frustrated with life, when you sense that your life is not what it ought to be, it has spiraled out of control. This is what scripture calls the fear of death. Now you understand that, that death is not just ceasing to exist. Death is not something that just happens at the end of our life. Death in all its nuance is the terrible reality that reaches into everyday life and gives a certain hue, certain tincture, certain color to everything that we do. That is why death is not something that comes to us after we have lived our life. But the fear of death grips our every moment. And addiction is in part a response to what people feel intuitively in their heart. Their life is not right. They're frustrated. They're looking for an escape. And so they are lured in by whatever substance, whatever activity that promised them pleasure, joy, and a sense of being complete. Actually, that's what the Bible calls life. Uh, life isn't simply a matter of existing and taking up space. Life in the biblical sense is to be whole, to be joyful, to be well, to know peace. You see, so much of what, what happens in our society is people struggling with the fear of death and the longing for life apart from Jesus, apart from God's grace. But what happens when people get addicted? Addiction quickly reaches the point of diminishing return, doesn't it? Have you ever known a happy addict? Addiction gives less but demands more. In order to get the same feeling, that same high, it requires more. There is a diminishing return. It promises, but quickly addicts discover that the promises are hollow. But addiction is cruel, isn't it? We think that it was service. Instead, it becomes a merciless master. So what happens with addiction in the body is actually very similar to what happens with sin in our heart. You know, it's, if you've ever known addicts, have you seen how incredibly hard it is to break the bondage of addiction? Well, escaping from the bondage of sin is even harder. In fact, 
it's not possible. The power of sin's cruel bondage is utterly beyond our ability to break. We are helpless. We do not have the resources within. That is why only God can break the power of sin. And God did this through the sacrifice of His Son. Jesus' life and His death, the blood that He shed on the cross, that is the ransom paid to rescue. That is the price that was paid to set slaves free. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to know Jesus, that in Jesus we have redemption. And it means that in Jesus we have forgiveness. That's what it means. And thirdly and lastly, in Jesus we have grace. In Jesus we have grace. So Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is why that Christian faith cannot be reduced down to a personal relationship with Jesus. And Christian faith cannot be reduced onto some lifestyle that we happen to find attractive. Because to be a Christian, to know Jesus in a saving way, means to receive Jesus as God's only Redeemer who rescues us from sin's bondage. And unless we see sin as the power that we cannot break, And unless we see that Jesus' death and resurrection are our only hope, we have not yet come to know Jesus as the Father gives him to us. And to know Jesus as the Father gives him to us is to discover the riches of his grace, the riches of his grace. In other words, God's redeeming love, it gives and it takes away. What does it take away? God's redeeming love takes away our bondage to sin. It takes away our shame. It takes away our guilt. It takes away not only the fear of judgment, but judgment itself. Whereas before we knew Jesus in a saving way, fear of death reaches into our everyday life. Now the life of Christ reaches into our everyday life and gives new meaning. A different hue, a different color to everything that we experience. So the, the redeeming love, the riches of His grace takes away, but it also gives. It gives us a new identity. We are no longer slaves, but we are adopted as children. God, through the death of his own beloved son, through his blood, rescued slaves, not merely to let them be, 
but so that he may make out of them his sons and daughters. Now, the, the wonderful thing about the, the, the adoption of the first century Greco-Roman culture was that when a child is adopted to the family, that child had every right and privilege of the natural-born child. And to be adopted into a family meant that you truly become the same as a natural-born child. And so when God adopts sinners as his sons and daughters, the wonder of that is that God receives us and his relationship becomes the same as the relationship that he has with his begotten, only begotten son. As Jesus is to the Father, so you become to the Father. As the Father loves Jesus, so the Father loves you. That's the gift of adoption. It takes away. What does it take away? What do you lose? You lose bondage. You lose slavery. You lose fear. You lose death. You lose judgment. But in turn, you gain new identity, new security, new dignity. And so God's redeeming love becomes our new life. Now, what does the new life look like? And we will get to this in latter parts of Ephesians, but already Paul has touched upon them in verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It is impossible for children to not reflect their parents, for better or for worse. And all of your parents know that, don't you? It's not possible for children living in your house to not reflect you in some ways. And that is also true spiritually. When we've been brought into God's family, it is impossible that we don't reflect or we don't become like our father. So that new life, we should be holy and blameless before him. And in verse 6, live to the praise of his glorious grace. We are redeemed to be new creation, to leave behind our old way of life that we lived when we did not know Jesus, and to live fully the new life after Jesus Christ. But, and this is where we, we experience heartache, isn't it? Because we find in our hearts sin, that clings to us. We struggle, we grieve, and we wonder why we cannot put sin forever behind us. It is true, sin sin makes us grieve and we long for freedom. But notice, loved ones, that the God who has ordained for you the perfect mediator, Jesus Christ, has also ordained for you your struggles. The God who in love gave you his son, that God in love has given you your struggles. They both come from the Father's love. 
Why? Well, you see, in our Father's love, we find that, and this becomes increasingly true as we walk with Jesus, as we mature, we find that in the love of our Father, we find that, yes, we do struggle with sin, and sin does cling to us. Yes, we grieve. Yes, we long to be free, and yet, in the deep love of the Father, we realize that it's not sin that shatters our hearts as much as it's His grace that shatters our hearts. It's the riches of His grace. You see, your Father, who with love gave you His Son, with love gives you your struggles so that you may understand the depth, the riches of God's grace for you. You see, grace that is rich, grace that is deep, is our Savior's gift. We falter, don't we? We struggle, don't we? We are pained in our heart. We are weary. We are tired, aren't we? But know this then, that His grace is deep. However you falter, however you struggle, there is grace for you. And I love the way that John Newton put it. Jesus is a greater Savior than our sins. That's what it means to be a Christian. To know Jesus Christ as your Redeemer. To know His forgiveness. To know that you have deep, rich grace in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your instructions this morning. And I pray that this grace, deep and rich and wonderful, would comfort us in our struggles against sin. Lord, we are often weary. We are often so bothered and so frustrated over our struggles with sin. And in our weariness and in our discouragement, it is so easy to forget that though we sin, though we stumble, Jesus is faithful, that his grace is deep, rich, and abundant. So may we find our constant joy and our assurance and our safety in Jesus Christ, and may we hold him as the greatest treasure of our hearts. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.